Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, the BBC goes pop with a brand new controller. The government stop Russia's state broadcasters from attending their conference on press freedom. And there's more drama with the tax status of on-air talent. Plus, why you might be a celebrity without even knowing it. It's all to do with your follower account. And how important is EPG to public service broadcasters? It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And joining me today is the MD of Production House Goldwaller, Faraz Osman. Hello, Faraz. Hi, Ollie. Production House. I like that. Yeah, we're like, I moved up from a flat and I now have a house. I'm doing, I'm doing all right. Aren't we're I? slowly expanding your empire every will time I get, you come will on I get the a show. hotel after this. Is that how it works? <laughs> uh, what have you been up to since we last met, Faraz? Uh, when am I making a podcast? That's I've exciting. heard of them. Yeah, we're making a, we're making a podcast, which is exciting. Apparently, that's all the rage right now. All the kids are listening to them. Um, so yeah, we're making an exciting podcast for BBC Sounds, uh, which we're start production t- today actually we had a pre-production meeting today so that's that's fun we're doing some stuff for bbc education as well um yeah and then just in in development with a few bits and pieces which is exciting and did this idea start at bbc sounds or had you touted it around uh no it is a it's very specific to a particular brief and a particular station you can probably guess what it is but like uh it's it's going to be fun to make it's going to be fun. it's a little bit dark but it's going to be fun i can guess what it is well, I mean, we're called Goldwaller. I'm I'm a Asian guy. Yeah. You know, what part of the BBC do you think we'll be making podcasts? For? I see. Well, who do you think done. is going to pick up the phone to us when we want to make podcasts? Okay, so you're doing a Wimbledon spin-off. Absolutely. Uh, also with us making her media pod debut, it's the founder of the Don't Skip Podcast Network, Christina Moore. Hi. Hello. Right, tell us about Don't Skip then because your website at the moment it's is coming soon. It's got a lot of white space. <laughs> yeah. It's very creative and beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't say an awful lot. So what is Don't Skip? It doesn't, not just yet. Uh, so the idea is that I'll be bringing like new talent to audiences and also supporting uh, the careers of independent podcasters. By making new shows? Yes, in some cases, at the moment, in very few cases. Um, but the idea is that talent that at the moment isn't necessarily being pushed to the forefront by some of the bigger corporations and streaming services, I'll be able to help them um, mobilise and grow an audience and, yeah, get some notoriety. And you should have a chat. What are you doing after this? You mean you should hang out after yeah. this? <laughs> and the name Don't Skip. I, I, look, I, I know that you used to work for Apple and you have a technological background as well as just a curational one. And I'm just curious if there's a tech background to this new company as well. At the moment, it's not technological. I don't have... So you're not going to make it possible for people not to skip a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sad. My dream. <laughs> Can you skip? I can't skip. 
Why? Like, as in, I can't using? use a skipping rope. Oh, okay, I sure. Is, is that part of the? Okay. Is that part of what no. you? No. Okay. No, just no. Okay. <laughs> You are going to be giving a presentation at the London Podcast Festival. What are you going to be talking about there? I am. I'm going to help independent creatives kind of market their podcast. So I'm going to do a little bit of a marketing session. Okay. Give us like the absolute idiot's guide quickly now. What is your top line? What's the thing that people fuck up that they should know how to do when it comes to marketing? Oh, SEO. Like they always kind of in their podcast description and their episode description Sometimes, if they even put one in, it's very, in this week's podcast, in this week's podcast, in Mm. this week's podcast, and there is nobody searching for in this week's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So you hit them straight away with the content, who's on the show or what the subject is. Absolutely. Okay. If if only the media podcast was a bit more (laughs) Googleable, I'd feel superior to that piece of information, but, you know, there we are. We are where we are. Uh, Now, let's talk about radio, because uh, Lorna Clark has been announced as the BBC's first ever controller of pop. It's part of a shake-up at their audio top table. Jonathan Wall is moving from running Five Live after a decade or so to become the controller of BBC Sounds. Uh, Christina, do you understand what those job titles actually are? There's a new controller of Radio 4. We'll park that because we all understand what that means. But controller of BBC Sounds, controller of pop, what does that mean? So the controller of BBC Pop will be mostly managing the content output on the radio, but we'll have some input in podcasts. The controller of BBC Sounds will be mostly looking after the output on the Sounds app. And that will include radio, but also some speech content and a heck of a lot of podcasts as well. Because if this was a commercial company, the BBC, and they already had a head of podcast, you'd kind of think that person would run BBC Sounds as well. Isn't it the same thing, really? Uh, well, I mean, I think that we are still trying to understand what BBC Sounds is. Is is it the iPlayer? In which case... I don't think your your analogy works because there are iPlayer exclusives, so you would want a head of iPlayer exclusives, and there are BBC One programs, and you would want somebody that's looking after those. and And so, if it's a technological role and it's a platform role, then I think it is absolutely fair that that BBC Sounds needs its own person that's heading up the whole thing in the same way that you have someone that's heading up the whole of content or whole of radio. So that kind of makes sense. Uh, what's What's interesting about this story is that. To me, it feels like there are the three announcements. They've all been bundled together, but they say something very different about what audio sounds like, looks like at the BBC. Um, in in the Radio Four is like a, an old steward. Radio One and Radio Two are kind of the kind of middle. They they felt new and fresh, you know, ten fifteen years ago. And now BBC Sounds is like the new new thing, and still needs to find its feet and and get going in a particular way. So so that is is interesting in its own right that they've kind of bundled them all together. When actually, I think they're three very different narratives. Um, and they're all they're all really decent people. It's exciting to see them in their roles. And controller of pop, I'm, I'm still not exactly clear what that job is. Yeah, I think what is really confusing, I guess, for audiences is that there is not a controller of speech radio, right? So four and five have their own controllers, but for some reason they've lumped all of their music content together. And is that right, especially when that music content also includes uh, One Extra and also Asia Network, which have very, very different audiences. And they're supposed to be aimed towards youth audiences, whereas those, for instance, two and six music are for old audiences. And from the outside as well, that word pop, I mean, I know that in reality she'll have a brief across basically all popular music. It really will be pop with a small P. But 
people think, oh, I don't listen to pop, I listen to hip-hop, or, you know, I listen well, to rock. So, look, so I think there are a few things around this. The first is is that I think that the, what Lorna's going to be looking after is, is effectively relationships with record labels, mm. right? The, the, the thing about pop music, inverted commas, is that it's still controlled by lots of big record labels. There are some independent artists out there, and that's a kind of whole fledgling different part of the business. But but my understanding of what Lorna's role is, is, is it's a bit more of a... Uh, a programming role that's her background as opposed to a, a content and genre role um there are controllers of radio one there are controllers of one extra there are controllers of six music and um or, or they've all got different titles but they they will look after the individual stations i think that what lorna's going to be looking after is from my understanding is is those relationships with the pop music industry which is an industry in its own right and you may interface with it via the different genres that you you like as a consumer but when it comes to a business it's my understanding is that it's it's a uh, it's it's a very particular relationship that the BBC needs to get right. There is a, you know, there's a head of music at, at um, the BBC. There's, you know, that that department seems to be getting bigger and bigger. The way that I would look at it is, and I would say this because I need to name drop this as, as often as I can because there's a statutes limitation of it. I was at Glastonbury a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and and that's and every, you see lots of genres of music there, right? You don't just see um, one type, and so to have the BBC at Glastonbury feels a bit weird because you don't know if it's a Radio 2 event or a BBC One event or a Radio 1 event or a B- One Extra event. And that's where it feels like Lorna's role will really kind of solidify because it does need to have somebody that understands that world. And I think that, that she'll do a good job of that. Except I remember examples in the past, Christina, where the BBC has got in trouble for seemingly promoting a new piece of commercial content. You know, someone's album. I remember around Adele and I think you Harry see. Styles, U2. Yeah. yeah. They a few did people these, got in trouble with that. A few people, that. yeah. <laughs> they sort of plastered. They did the BBC thing. They went across platform. They had a bit online. They changed the BBC logo. It's mad. Um, and, and I think this so is So if that's mad, if that's a thing that probably the BBC shouldn't be doing... Isn't there a danger that sort of thing is more likely if you have an executive whose sole role is talking to record companies about matching their I don't, content sorry, to the BBC? Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't think that's going to be her sole role. I, I think that she's going to have a very, very big portfolio. She's going to be doing lots of things. Okay. But there's an understanding as to kind of what the audience will want and their expectations. I think you're right. There's a public service understanding about how popular music works as part as as part of the the, the BBC Corporation and and how um, and how you you uh, broadcast that as as part of the network um, as as well as making sure that some of the issues that you raise are, are dealt with properly. I think that's going to be part of a role. I would still question whether that role should be controller of pop music. Should that not be another title? Seeing as we've got controllers for all of the stations perhaps that role should be I don't want to call it business development or anything like that but it, it sounds like it's more of a partner relations role I think I think you're right and also like she's only looking after radio is she taking some of the work away from Jan Young Husband and Bob Shannon or, or is she is she not is she is there, is there a firewall between radio and it seems it seems actually quite dated both in the name of the title and and actually the job description but I think that it's a positive thing that she's got it and I think she'll do a really good job of it knowing her background and I think that there's a uh, it it, it comes back to my earlier point about there being lots of stories around how uh, audio works in in the BBC and, and how it's integrated in the in the new media environment. Okay, and then the controller of Radio 4. Mohit Bakaya has got the job. He was the kind of favourite internal candidate and everyone thought months ago he was going to get the job. Why do you think they sat on announcing it was him for so long? I mean, I I'm, I'm have the pleasure of 
meeting Mo a few times, and he's he's a, an amazing guy. He's really inspirational. I think that he he works really well with the creative community. I think he really really understands Radio Four. Um, it's I think it's been almost longer coming. Uh, I think that he's been uh, ready for that role for quite a while. So I'm great. I'm really glad that it's happened. My understanding is that Cassian, who runs BBC Four, also went for that role, and that may be one of the reasons why they just needed to give it a bit more due diligence because because I think Cassian's a, a great candidate as well and he's done a really good job with BBC Four so when he applied maybe that meant that it just needed a bit more time to actually figure out what the identity of BBC Four was but I you know I think that they've landed across all of these three roles I think they've landed some really good people to to look after these roles and uh and and Mohit I'm, I'm a big fan of Mohit so so big thumbs up from me Big, big fan of all the people who might commission us to do things. Yeah, <laughs> controversial <laughs> views being espoused here on the media podcast. I love everyone on this list. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Christina, talking of public service broadcasting, Ofcom want traditional PSB TV channels to stay visible within the on-screen TV guides, and that means reversing the minimum levels of prominence that BBC channels like CBBS get on Sky, where clearly Disney is being prioritised up the list because they're paying to be carried by Sky and vice versa. Um, Is that a good move? Yes, I think. I'm all for equal representation of different content. But at the same time, there is an argument to be had that private companies should be able to run their affairs as they see fit. So Sky and but Virgin Media the, should be able to choose what channel it, gets what slot. Yeah, yeah, they should be. But but like I said, I think there should be some equal representation of what's available because it's in the best interest of the audience to be able to, to know what's available and to select whatever they want. But this isn't about knowing what's available. This is about prioritising it so that the BBC, ITV and Channel 5, Channel 4 channels will always come higher than the channels by other operators. Okay, so yeah, prioritising it will lead to certain channels being selected more often by viewers. And in an ideal world, they'd be able to shift that priority, so have it on a kind of rotation rather than having continuously having BBC channels or any of our terrestrial channels available uh, have that on a rotation. How would it work on rotation? I mean, I understand how you'd feature different content on rotation. So one day you'd have a piece of commercial content from Sky One and the next day you'd have Strictly Come Dancing. I get that. If you're featuring it in a carousel. Mm -hmm. But literally the ordering of channels, I mean, viewers get frustrated when those move around, don't they? That's a fair point. But I just feel like somebody's going to get annoyed, right? So either those commercial channels, especially those from the US, are going to be annoyed or our terrestrial channels in the UK are going to get annoyed. And so the only way then, if you want to, quote-unquote, please everybody, is to rotate those channels. Was it the right move by Ofcom for us? Programme prominence and channel prominence on the EPGs is still, to this day... Um, is incredibly valuable. Your, your number on the EPG is the fact that BBC One is Channel One on any EPG means is one of the key reasons. You know, they're a very good channel, but it is also one of the key reasons why they're the most watched channel in the UK. And it's important that we ensure that the that the channels that that represent and reflect and are under scrutiny from the press and from us as audiences stay at that level of prominence because they are the people that I want to get commissioned by. They are the people that I go to watch and they're the voices that I want to hear when something, you know, when news breaks or there's a big agenda setting moment, you know, we want to continue to make sure that our broadcasters hold that power, particularly when we've got massive consolidation happening around the world in in this space. What is interesting is that Sky and Sky Q, I think in particular, has deprioritized the EPG and have made, you know, massive steps into kind of going, oh no, we're an on-demand service now and that's what we're about. And actually the EPG is almost a secondary product to, to what 
you know what we offer and it just uh, so happens our pick of all the best content exactly. is from Sky Atlantic exactly and and that is a and, and that is a, a a clear business decision that Sky have made and it's a shrewd business decision that they've made and that's not to discount the fact that some of the work that Sky do in the UK is is really strong um, but they're not a public service broadcaster um, and they don't or they aren't beholden to some of the same rules and regulations that, that Channel Four and ITV are and and so we do need to kind of continue to think about this question but as we move further and further into this digital space and as you know apps on phones are, are icons that we go into and and when um apple tv launches and that becomes like the, the gateway into all your media consumption and uh, and we have more and more aggregators of content this is going to become a more and more difficult question as to how we ensure that the bbc itv channel 4 channel 5 and and public service broadcasters and all this kids content is prioritised based on their their public value and not just their commercial value. It's an important thing to do. We need to keep discussing it. There is no right solution. I think there's a problem with the licence fee, but that's a separate conversation for a separate day, I think. It's a conversation we've had many times before. I am curious what's going to happen about, on Sky specifically, you say that BBC One's Channel One, and actually I think, to be fair, if you literally hold down One, you get BBC One. Correct. But if you type in 101, which is the number associated on the EPG with BBC One, you don't get BBC One HD, you get the standard definition BBC Correct. One. Whereas every other HD variant comes afterwards. You get BBC Two HD, ITV HD, yep. Channel Four HD. To find BBC One HD, you have to scroll down through pages. Yeah, what number is it? 115. 115, so you're past Sky... One, you're past Sky Atlantic, aren't you? You're past things like ITV3. That's weird, isn't it? Considering it is the most popular channel in the country. Do you think they're going to have to rectify that? Well, I mean, the boring answer is that there's a technical issue. The technical issue is that lots of local TV transmitters don't all transmit in HD. Right, so when you switch over, you'll see this. There's a, and, and I'm sure it's a meme somewhere as well, which the the music that plays when you switch to local yeah. news and it doesn't play in your region and whatever. So while that continues to happen, the BBC are are unable to um, prioritise BBC One HD because it means that lots of people will lose local news, and local news is very very important. So you need to keep BBC One non HD at the top of the EPG because it has public value as a result of that. So. It's expensive to convert everything over to a HD transmitter. I mean, we can go back to the story around EastEnders and how much they spent on getting a, a HD studio. Um, and for, for local networks, it's incredibly expensive based on their, their viewership. So when we're not there yet. The first thing we'll need to do is fix that problem. And then we can fix the problem about like having HD for everybody, which does need to happen. And Christina, we've seen some stats this week on what happens when a public service broadcaster disappears entirely from the EPG. Uh, with regard to BBC Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is uh, John Plunkett, formerly of this parish, of course, now editor of The Poke, tweeted this week that BBC Three's reach among 16 to 34-year-olds dropped to 8% last year, and 10 years earlier, when it was still a proper channel, if you like, it was 26%. Now, obviously, their reach would have declined over the last 10 years because there's a lot of competition out there. His argument was it wouldn't have fallen off a cliff, though. I think he makes a very fair point. I think that actually competition does have a lot to do with why there's been a drop in viewership of BBC Three content and part of that is because BBC's built to be a public service and therefore is regulated and scrutinised in a way that many YouTube channels aren't, in a way that many podcasts aren't and that's what its competition is, right? So if you compare the output from Vice 
to the BBC three, there is no way that they're going to be able to say the things that Vice say or even to portray things in the way that Vice journalists do. So I do think that while taking it off of the television would have been a mistake and has absolutely contributed to the drop in audience figures it's actually probably more to do with competition and what other people are able to do creatively in the way that BBC can't. I suppose the content that is on BBC Three that's really good has ended up on BBC One for us faster than it would have done otherwise as well. I mean you could argue a positive for BBC Three having dropped off EPG is that you get the likes of Fleabag going straight to BBC One. Um, look, Do I think that Fleabag wouldn't have existed if if BBC Three hadn't gone online, I mean, I don't, I don't buy that argument. Fleabag was a, you know, when people saw Phoebe's show up in Edinburgh, my understanding is that there was a massive bidding war about for it and for her. Everyone went nuts for it. They could see the talent. You know, it's it's hard not to see the talent from anybody, whether you're in the creative industry or not. That that Phoebe is one of the most talented individuals we have in this country. She would have been a success, and and I don't think that BBC Three. Um, being online, being on TV, anything else would have stopped that from happening. It was going to happen, right? So I think that we can put that argument in a box and, and put it under there. We could have another argument about is Fleabag a BBC Three show or is it a BBC Two show or is it a BBC One show? I don't think anybody cares. Fleabag is Fleabag and it's its own thing. I would argue the same is true for People Just Do Nothing and and some of the other successes that, that people always mention. Stacey's an interesting character. You know, she, um, it feels like she has found her voice on BBC Three and they've nurtured her and, you know, she's risen to prominence as a result of that. But but when it comes to actually, you know, launching influencers, launching new voices, launching young talent, launching lots of people that um, that this move was meant to do, uh, and 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 brands, you know, I'm not sure that this has been the success they hoped it to be. That when it comes to the figures, I mean, you cut the budget and you cut the access to the content, and you lose you lose. I mean, that's not rocket science. I mean, anybody knew that was going to happen, and I think even the BBC would have been aware that it was going to dive or dip depending on on how pc you want to be about it but um it's so it doesn't surprise me it is a bit of a shock that it's so hard and so fast particularly as i've always said young audiences are the most important audiences to bbc if they want to survive for the next kind of generation because they'll um, be playing the license because they're playing the license and not just yeah. that but they've got to make a decision now the, the bbc three audience are the audience now that need to make a decision about whether or not they're going to pay the license fee. It's like any subscription. As soon as you do it once, that's what you need to do. As soon as you've done it for the first time, the likelihood is that you're just going to keep doing it. You grumble about it every year, you're going to keep doing it. If you're not going to concentrate on those viewers and you're not going to give them an incentive to know that the BBC is such a valuable public service and you're not going to provide content for them and you're going to you know, super concentrate on, on older audiences then it's not going to be a surprise when you know when those figures and that drop in figures and that drop in access will result in a drop of money that comes from the licence fee. Uh, let's talk about the Advertising Standards Authority now, who have decided that anyone with over 30,000 social media followers should be bound by the ASA's rules on advertising. Christina, talk us through this story. It's good that influencers are being held accountable for some of the things that they say or advertise or push on their platforms. However, I feel like the 30,000 followers is a bit arbitrary. It's like it's not really a matter of the number of followers you have. It's more about how well you're able to communicate and translate. So this specifically came about because of the rules on advertising drugs. Yes, yeah. So the blogger Sarah Willocks-Knott promoted an over-the-counter sleeping pill 
And she got in trouble because if you're advertising a pill, you can't be a celebrity. Medical companies, pharmaceutical companies aren't allowed to use celebrities yes. to say, hey, try this, which is why you don't see Dr. Chris advertising erectile dysfunction pills or whatever. That's correct. Because he would be deemed a celebrity, not just an expert. Yeah. If it's not based on follow account, how do you say when an influencer tips into celebrity? Do you think it's completely arbitrary that they said, well, she had more than 30,000 followers, therefore she should be classified as a celebrity? Where would you draw the line if not there? I didn't know who she was until the story. I think there has to be a set of criteria. So not just you have 30,000 followers. There also has to be, okay, what's your level of influence? Yes, you'll have to kind of figure out how that is measured. But I think there has to be a set of criteria rather than just one arbitrary number. What do you think, Fraz? Where would you put it? Well, I mean, so this is a case of the law and inverted commas, the establishment, catching up with what's going on in the world right now. And, And I think Christina's point is really valid about how... You've got some influencers and social media stars that got lots of followers, but but don't get the same level of engagement when it comes to advertising. Um, and, and also, when you look at platforms like Snapchat and TikTok, where follow and in, even Instagram, I'm starting to do this as well, where follow accounts are going to be less visible and less of a big thing. Mm. You know, this now feels like it's it's solving a problem that we had a few years ago and there's a, there's more problems on the horizon there's absolutely no doubt when it comes to influencers we have an issue about how they communicate to their followers and what's an advert and what's not an advert you know this is all well and good in the UK but a lot of followers that, that people have in the UK aren't aren't UK influencers so when they're advertising something it's from a you know it's from a big American superstar who doesn't have to follow the same rules that a British influencer does but yet they're on the same platform and are in the same feed and it doesn't it all doesn't click together and this is kind of almost like a, an old solution to a very very new problem the truth is is that if you don't want people advertising medical products then don't let medical products advertise. It's just as simple as that. They shouldn't have an advertising budget and then that solves the problem. You can argue about whether that's a good thing or not, but in the UK, the way that we deal with medicine in the UK is very, very different to the way that... Um, the, you know, the Americans do with medication. And actually, Christina, Sarah Willock's not in this example, had tagged her Instagram post with the hashtag ad. Like, yes. it was fairly clear to anyone who was paying attention she was being paid to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I suppose... In a way, what the ASA is doing is almost pushing these drug companies, since, as Fraz points out, this loophole exists, to find people who are just under the cusp of being an official celebrity. I mean, my follower counts 22,000 or something, so I'd qualify. Finding people that have a small level of influence, and then they wouldn't have to declare anything. I mean, how's that better? But you've been pushing drugs on me for ages. (laughs) (laughs) I think you make a fair point, because if I were a drug company... All I would do is then just avoid people who had followers over 30,000. And possibly and that, and make it, it less transparent. Yeah, and yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I hate to over-regulate anything, but this is why I say that there has to be a, a broader set of criteria that satisfies Ofcom. And you also think it depends sort of as well what they're an influencer for. for. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my mind casts back to our previous episode, actually, when Ian Dale was talking about how... Uh, someone had asked him what socks he was wearing and he told them and then they assumed he'd taken money for it. I mean, Ian Dale is... I mean, forgive me, I know he's listening. Uh, Ian, you're not a big influencer in the clothes world. Um, But if Ian Dale was, um, for example saying that a particular uh, political news website was the one that he turned to every morning, obviously that would have a lot of cachet for his 50,000, 100,000 followers. So it sort of depends who you are, doesn't it? Yeah, and what you stand for. Because she's a, she's a mum, this woman, that's her thing, being a mummy. Do uh, the sleeping pills that she takes, uh, are they that crucial to her brand anyway? Sorry. When I read the article, she said that she she was a bit of a night owl anyway. So it wasn't because she was a mummy blogger. It was because yeah. she was 
somebody who suffered from insomnia. And so I, I think that to kind of kind of wrap her on her knuckles because she's influencing other parents to take drugs before they go to sleep, I think that's not it's not quite fair. All right, we'll be back with some more media news in brief after this. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Switching to Shopify helps you sell smarter at every stage of your business. Take full control of your brand with your own custom online store. Wow, looks amazing. Find more customers with our easy-to-use marketing tools piece of cake and let the best converting checkout on the planet do its thing whatever your stage businesses that grow grow with shopify switch to shopify today for a one dollar a month trial at shopify.com slash listen shopify.com slash listen Time for some more big media news now. Christina and Faraz are still with me. And the first ever global conference for media freedom is taking place in London as I speak. Uh, who has been refused entry? Christina. Us, that's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wasn't invited today. and it would have been interesting. Um, <laughs> Russia Today, today and yes. Sputnik. And Sputnik, which is sort of their yeah. radio station. Yes. Fair enough, do you think or not? Um, do you know what? I don't like the hypocrisy. And, and let me tell you why. So... The reason why Russia Today and Sputnik have been essentially barred from this conference is because, let me just read the quote, it says, we have not accredited RT and Sputnik because of their active role in spreading disinformation. However, as we know, there's a lot of news groups. You can say them. <laughs> are you thinking <laughs> who Fox have been, News, for example? <laughs> who have been, um, who are known to spread Who take false, a side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. information. I mean, and Russia so Today have been found sort of guilty by the government agencies who look into impartiality of breaching that code though and this is a government sponsored event yeah so what's the hypocrisy i mean they're just saying look if you're going to come to our event on media freedom you need to not breach our guidelines on media freedom we do regulate british newspapers and we have found them guilty as well of misinformation and smear campaigns and so if you're going to do that then you also kind of have to make sure that that's fair to also bar them and then if you follow that through to its conclusion yeah you're sort of saying the government wants to curry favour with the British newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> and in a media freedom event, that doesn't, that's not it a cool look. No, not at all. Yeah. But I mean, like, the thing is, I, and I don't, if I'm honest, I don't know enough about this event and exactly what its aims are and what it's trying to do. But if it is a summit, then surely you want to invite as many people as possible to be part of this dialogue. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. If you believe, and, and I think you know, I think you have fair evidence to believe, that Sputnik and Russia Today have been doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, rather than lock them out of the conversation about why we need to have a dialogue about what should be okay and what shouldn't be okay, they are 
a very influential broadcaster both in their own home uh, home country and and around the world so we need to make sure we engage them in the conversation and if they draw different conclusions than our own broadcasters draw or own, our own media companies draw okay fine we might not be happy about that but excluding them from the conversation i don't think does anybody any favors unless they got evidence or they you know they've found something that's suggesting that that rt and sputnik were going to in some way report on this summit in unfairly and cause cause mischief in which case that's when you would not not accredit somebody they are bigger overseas than they are in their home country though i mean the raison d'etre of russia today is to stir stuff up in other countries that aren't russia and change the news agenda there i don't think this doesn't mean broadcast this summit is it so it's like it surely is a a summit to i'm sure it's been broadcast online and there's like you know you can there's ways that you can see it can watch the highlights on youtube (laughs) but that's not my understanding is that that's not the point of it the point of it is to have a conversation and in, in when you have a conversation, you need to engage all sides of that debate in in effort to kind of figure out where the, where you want to land as a as as an opinion. And if you're going to ban people from it, then you have to have a really strong reason. And I've not come across a super strong reason to ban somebody from a conversation, banning them from transmitting in the UK, banning them from um, because they've they've broken particular rules and you've set up what those guidelines are. Fine, that's just how the you know how we do regulation in this country. But banning them from a conversation that feels like a one step too far. Okay, let's talk about the statistics that have come out this week, concluding that more than half of news reports about Muslims in the UK show a negative bias. That is according to a new monitoring group created by the Muslim Council of Britain who I've just mentioned, I think, without a negative bias. Uh, Christina, were you surprised by their findings? No, <laughs> I don't think anybody who is uh, a person of colour, BAME, whatever label you want to attach to it, I don't think anybody is surprised that there's a, a bias in reporting. It's something that's been felt by Asian and black communities um, and something that they've kind of brought up in conversation plenty of times before. I think the only thing that I want to know now is what's the next step? Because you've done the report, you've done the survey, you've done the analysis. So what? What happens now? Are you now asking that there's going to be regulations implemented is there a way of somehow monitoring the new sources i want to know what the next steps are and what the results going to be it's also a question of you, you can't sort of interfere too much with the news headlines as well though isn't it for us i mean we we know there is an ever-present threat of islamist terrorism around the world that obviously is going to figure in the news headlines we've got those protests outside the school in birmingham at the moment about the sex education curriculum that is news it's quite difficult to see how you can report those in positive terms for the Muslim community, isn't it? I mean, there's an ever-rising threat of far-right radicalism, you know, that's that's out there as well. And, and that's, you know, I don't think that you've got the same level of statistics when it comes to reporting on certain individuals that are... Um, have leanings towards you know towards those those sort of ideas you know we're, we're living in a country now where we're currently going through i hate to mention this but we've all got to mention it right now we're going through a prime minister leadership contest for the conservative party where a poll came out that the majority of the people that are going to vote for that person to lead our next country don't believe a muslim is suitable to run the country i mean imagine if we had a imagine if we had the same sort of thing come out about um, Ed Miliband, when when he was leader of the Labour Party, it's be like, oh no, but he's Jewish, so we can't have him as leader of the Labour Party. This would be a, a, it would be an absolute catastrophe. Yet this is exactly what's happening right now within the Conservative Party, and it just demonstrates where we've got to around the dialogue around Islam and, and Muslims and and how they're seen and portrayed. Okay, but what's um, the answer to my question? When you have stories that feel like negative stories for the country, you know, I mean, we could go on listing them. You know, grooming gangs, for example. How do you then say right? Well, you have to report that. 
how do you counterbalance it with positive Muslim stories to change the way the, that it's being perceived? But I think I think that there are, there are two things happening. There are certainly things that are happening that are related to the religion. There's no doubt about that. There there are um, there is a massive issue with Islam as a religion of, of who I feel like I'm part of the community of. There's a massive problem with certain members of followers of the religion that cause headlines that are not comfortable to read, particularly if you're somebody from from that background. But unfortunately, there is also a conflated issue where every time something happens that's negative, whether or not it's got anything to do with that person's background and that person's race or that person's religion or even that person's sex or gender in some instances, we are seeing that being appropriated to the headline. And that's where the issue is. Not all of the stories that we're talking about, and I would argue probably quite a few of the stories that we're talking about, have anything to do with that person's religious background. It's simply that if you put the word Islam, Muslim, Asian male in a headline it gets more clicks online and it feeds into the idea that these are people that you should be scared about and that's not something that we should be doing as a as a respected press in this world I'm going to talk about radio now Wait. and uh, the talk sport presenter Paul Hawksby has avoided a £140,000 tax bill do you remember why this is intriguing because he said that well essentially he has his own production company but he's still works for the majority of the time for his talk sport program and so the argument was that because the majority of his income comes from talk sport therefore he can no longer assess himself as a as a company yeah so hmrc wanted to treat him as a member of staff because basically he's done the same radio show every day for 10 years whatever it is and 90 percent of his income for us in in a year comes from doing that show and yet he said no i'm a contractor because i'm employed through my private company kickabout productions limited I have had other jobs in the past. I used to write for Harry Hill's TV Burp, therefore I'm freelance. And the judge agreed with him. Yeah. And I think that, that when you're working in the creative industries, this is this is the reality of it. You don't just do one job. You might be most well known for one job, but you, you do a, a mixed portfolio of, of, of work. And, and so this is why you end up starting a private company and, and working in that way. It, I'm not saying it's perfect, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't look at it again and make sure that we... Um, we figure out how we uh, designate these companies so we can collect tax properly. But when it comes to the current rules, I think he's absolutely right. He's a company that does different things and therefore that's how he should get taxed accordingly. I mean, it is frightening, isn't it, to think you could be doing a job for 10 years in this industry and then suddenly get a bill for £140,000. And whatever you whatever you earn, however high profile you are, that's a lot of money to suddenly find out the back of the sofa. Yeah, I also think that a few things that should be considered. So freelancers also kind of use this essentially the same system so they work for a number of different broadcasters and once you've kind of set that policy to say that okay we're going to back bill uh presenters who else are you going to include it's, it's also just as a side note I, I think it also leans into the idea around this whole pay scandal inverted commas that's going on at the bbc right now because there are a lot of people that are get, that get presenter fees as part of being on the BBC that aren't, I don't think, are being reported. Um, and, and that's skewing these results that everyone's putting on, splashing on the front pages of all these papers. So I've always been curious about someone like Will I Am, who appeared as a judge on The Voice and then appears as a judge on ITV. Mm. And there's no conversation whatsoever about, well, what does he get paid at the, when he was on the BBC and what does he get paid when, he, when that show moved to ITV? The Bake Off's the same. Like, you know, what do those presenters get paid over there and what do they get paid over here? You don't see any of that because all of those guys are part of private companies and they're invoicing 
the, the the BBC not as a as a member of staff, but as a as a private company, and that's actually skewing those results. And no one seems to be talking about that because um, it's not easy. I should point out at this point that Will I Am was not the judge ruling over the HMRC tax rules. Uh, let's move on finally to talk about Channel 5's yearly operating profit dropping by £5 million over the year to September 2018. Now, that is a drop, but actually, in the scale of a big terrestrial TV channel, it's not that much of a drop, is it? And they're investing in original programming. What do you think, Christina? I don't think it's anything to be worried about. I think whenever there's change, because there was some implication that's because they are changing uh, the types of content output. Um, And whenever there's change, there's going to be a little bit of a dip in advertising until they find the suitable advertising for the programmes. But I don't think there's anything Channel 5 need to really worry about if they get their commercial team into shape. I mean, they've gone up market, haven't they, basically, for us, since the Richard Desmond days. I mean, it'd be hard to go further down market, I guess. And now they're going for Michael Palin in North Korea and let's go inside the National Trust and trying to get some of that Channel 4 budget, basically. Yeah, I mean, look, Ben Frow is, is doing one of the most exceptional jobs in television right now. And I think anybody that works in TV thinks that the way that he's managing that channel is is exceptional and he's really given it an identity above and beyond what it was punching at previously. So so I think that anybody that wants to criticise where Channel 5 is right now is going to have a bit of a rough ride. Um, I think people are genuinely impressed with what it is that they're doing. I, I'll be interested to know if these figures are pre-Big Brother or post-Big Brother, because obviously now Big Brother is no longer on Channel 5, just like what happened at Channel 4. That has a massive impact on the bottom line, and, and you are going through a massive period of creative renewal as a result of that. We are also seeing... The, uh, the, the situation with Viacom come into play where Channel 5 is now part of that much bigger network. Um, so I think across the board, it's, it's easy to kind of look at this in isolation. But the, re- the reality is that Channel 5, for very good reasons, has become a much bigger story and a bigger player than being an individual TV channel now. And, and we need to look at it in, in part of that context. Yeah, and even losing money, some of those Viacom shows that are getting a terrestrial outing on Channel 5 are going to double, treble, quadruple the audience they would have had on MTV. Absolutely. Uh, OK, just time for our thrilling media quiz let's call this edition in with the old as we challenge our guests to identify the formats set for a revival i'm going to describe the premise of a vintage tv or radio show you just have to give me the title before your opponent Uh, now christina i know you're new to this you buzz in with your name when you know the answer so you will say christina and faraz you will say faraz let's go Question number one. Which ITV show that lets shoppers go wild in the aisles will return... Very promising debut, Christina. I've started, so I'll finish. Will return with a new host on ITV2. Yes, Christina. Supermarket Suite. Correct. Check it out. Who's the new host for a bonus point? Oh... No! Faraz, do you want to Ryan. take this? Ryan. Ryan? Ryan. No, it's Ryland. Ryland. What is Ryland's surname? Does anyone know Ryland? Is it like Boris? Like, what is his surname? It, I have it in front of me. I would struggle. It's Ryland Clark Neal. Oh, it's that's yes. right. Uh, he's going to be hosting the new show. I think I think he's a great fit, Inspired by the way, choice. for Supermarket Suite. Yeah. Inspired choice. I, think, I genuinely think that Ryan's a great broadcaster and, and actually does really good work on Radio 2 as well. So And Supermarket Suite is terrible. Like You need a compelling... Presenter. This generation, Dale Winton, who would have thunked it? (laughs) Okay, question number two. Which long-standing radio show has lost its much-loved host to, quote, new challenges? Christina. Kirsty. Kirsty, I need the full answer. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) At least give us the show. Desert Island Discs. Yes, Desert Island Discs has lost Kirsty Young. She's been ill, of course, and Lauren Laverne's been... Uh, filling in but she's now stepping down full time she says not because of illness but because being away because of her illness has made her prioritise what she wants to do will you miss her? I miss her voice yeah I've got very used to her voice yeah I mean I think Lauren Laverne's great 
But Kirsty Young was the best ever presenter of that show, mm. wasn't she? I wonder if there was a conversation about do you do you lay it out to rest? What's what do you do on a desert island? Do you let it? Did you let it sail out into the sunset and and just kind of go? You know, we're calling time on desert island discs, or or if it's too much of a a big format to let. Sorry, go. what I, I know we're late in the show and you've <laughs> got to go off. But are you actually suggesting someone axes the greatest radio format of all time? Well, if, if Kirsty, but isn't it is Kirstie's, that what you're suggesting? But isn't it? Kirstie's no, but there was format? someone before no, Kirsty. It's been on no, for fifty yeah, years. <laughs> Like, what do you mean you don't know? It's like a bit of renewal. Maybe time is to you know, try something new. Here's question number three. Uh, Faraz, this is your chance to come back after that clang. What's a disc? <laughs> no one knows what discs are anymore. We live in a Leave digital it. age. You're come making on. it worse. <laughs> Which blockbuster comedy show have fans been speculating about after one of its creators mused upon a new series? Oh, it's Blackadder, isn't it? It is. You've got to say your name to when you know oh, the Faraz, answer. Oh, Faraz. Sorry, Faraz yeah. Blackadder. Faraz Blackadder. <laughs> Could have taken that from you, Christine. <laughs> I heard that guy. Uh, yeah, Richard Curtis, who was the co-writer of Blackadder, of course, gave an interview to the Radio Times. Say, I didn't know that. Saying, he, what, he was the co-writer of Blackadder? No, I didn't know that. I'm not doing very well in this quiz today, am I? You're exposing your ignorance in the last minutes of the show. People won't notice. They'll have left by now. Young it's audiences. You... I'd like to talk about my company and how we make stuff for young audiences. <laughs> you did very promisingly in the opening of the show. <laughs> Maybe um, you should take over from BBC Three. Christy, I, this was a headline from the Radio Times who are very good at generating PR, but this is nonsense. They're not going to do another series of Blackadder, are they? Uh, it depends who it's for. I don't care for it, if I'm going to be honest. I just don't care for it. I... That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, I would say possibly one of the greatest TV sitcoms of all time, but you are allowed your, your own taste. Yeah, I, I yeah. can't even remember how old I was when Faraz that would just finished. decommission it all. I know. <laughs> no, I mean, if I, was running, if I was running Gold, then, is it, you know, if I was running UK TV, then uh, then obviously this is going to be very attractive. But, uh, yeah, I kind of agree. It's, it's, I agree, Christina, that it's, uh, it feels like it's, it's had its day and a little bit like all of these sitcoms that get, get pulled back up again. They're never as good as you remember them being. Um, when you try and redo them again, it's like, let's let's get some new stuff out. Well, you have had your day on this podcast for now, Faraz, because, Christina, congratulations, you have won the media quiz. Thanks. On your first appearance, how about that? Oh, yay. <laughs> Did you let her win, Faraz? Were you being noble? Probably, or you just, you yeah. You on other things, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's it for today. Thank you to my guests, Christina Moore and Faraz Osman. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale, Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. We will be back in August with our annual special from the Edinburgh TV Festival. Until then, bye-bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.